I invite you to open up in God's Word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 17 through 20 today. Uh, the title of the message is, uh, is Genuine Disciple-Making. Genuine Disciple-Making, Missional Longing. We're going to be talking about uh, making disciples and, and what that means as we study this passage in 1 Thessalonians. But let's go ahead and turn our attention to the passage uh, let's read these verses, verses 17 through 20, and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. That's the word of God. Would you bow in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to, uh, to delight in your word. You tell us in Psalm chapter 1 that the blessed person delights in your word. Meditates on it day and night. And, uh, and he's like a, like, a, like a tree planted by streams of water. And so, uh, Father, that, that's what we want. And so just help us, Lord, in this time to delight in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the mid-1800s, uh, uh, Dr. David Livingston served as a missionary to the heart of Africa. And he sought to open up the interior of Africa to commerce and Christianity, and he wanted to uh, work to bring an end to the slave trade there. And, and, and I was recently reading about his, his first missionary journey there, and one of the things that stood out was, uh, was how few converts he reported uh, having during his several years uh, there in that first missionary journey, how, how few conversions to Christianity he reported. Now, of course, one reason for this, uh, this was the, just the difficult soil in which he was casting the seed of the gospel. Uh, the, these, uh, these natives were steeped in tribal religion and, and traditions, and, and so it was just a lot of obstacles in, in, in the gospel finding a resting place in, in their hearts. But another reason um, that Dr. Livingston reported so few conversions had to do with the criteria that he used when it came to... Uh, reporting whether somebody had, had, uh, had converted to Christianity or not. Dr. Livingston would not fully consider someone a convert to uh, Christianity until after that individual had not only expressed faith in Jesus Christ, but also had, had lived a life following Jesus for several years. Um, it, it wasn't until then that he would say that person is a, is a convert, has converted to Christianity. Now, it wasn't that Dr. Livingston thought that good works, that person's uh, trying to follow Jesus, uh, was necessary for their salvation, contributed to whether or not they were saved or not. But it was that he understood something extremely essential and, and important to genuine Christianity and genuine gospel ministry. What Dr. Livingston uh, understood was that a Christian is someone who follows Jesus with his or her life after having been transformed by Jesus. It's not just somebody who has said that they trust in Jesus. It's somebody who, once their life has been transformed by Jesus, it shows in the way that 
he or she lives. And therefore, genuine gospel ministry, genuine missionary work is about making followers of Jesus. A biblical term for a follower of Jesus is a disciple. That's the word that the Bible uses. Um, and so a disciple, we could define it this way. A disciple is someone who follows or obeys uh, or lives according to, however you want to phrase that, uh, someone who follows the teachings or ways of his master. Now, as Christians, our master is Jesus. And so to be a disciple of Jesus is not just to say that we believe in him, but it's to follow him with our lives. You see, it could be argued that Dr. Livingston's rigorous standards for counting converts to Christianity flow directly from the commission given by his master, given by Jesus in Matthew chapter 28. There we find what is often referred to as the Great Commission. The text reads in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is Jesus' commandment? Jesus didn't command us to make people who simply claim to follow him. He didn't command us to merely get people to uh, repeat a prayer after us. Uh, he didn't command us just to get people to walk down the aisle of a, of a church building or, or to fill out a response card or to raise their hand during an invitation. No, no. Those things, some of those things aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. But, but what did Jesus command? He commanded us to make people who follow after him. That is disciples. He commanded us to make disciples, people who actually follow him with their lives. Dr. Livingston went to Africa to make disciples because Jesus had commanded his followers to make disciples. And Dr. Livingston was counting disciples because that's what Jesus is counting. In Paul's first letter to the church of the Thessalonians, he devotes a significant portion of the letter to recounting his relationship with the Thessalonian believers. And we call this narrative. That's the kind of the, the genre, if you will, of, of this section of First Thessalonians. He's, he's telling a story about what has happened in the past. He's recounting historical events. And it appears that, that one of the reasons that he is recounting um, past events in chapter 2 and chapter 3 is, is to not only encourage the Thessalonians, but also to, uh, to give a defense. Because some of the people there in Thessalonica were claiming that Paul and his, his companions were frauds. And we've been looking at that. Um, and we've talked about some of his defenses that he's made so far, but he's not done uh, with that, defending himself so that the Thessalonians know not only that he's not a fraud, but that the gospel that he proclaimed to them is not a fake or a false gospel. Now, we've studied through the first half of this narrative section in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, and that focused on the time when Paul was with them in Thessalonica. In those verses, he described how he ministered the gospel to them and how they received the gospel initially for salvation in order to. Uh, and, he, and he said that in order to defend himself against the false claim that somehow he had preached the gospel of Jesus to them from selfish motives. Or for selfish gain. Now, in the second half of this narrative section, which begins in chapter two, verse 17 and goes through chapter three, verse 13. 
Paul focuses on the time since he left them. So after he leaves them, what what happened? In these verses, chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 13, Paul uh, describes how he is still concerned about them and their continued faithfulness to Jesus, even though he's not present with them. In other words, Paul is concerned with their growth as disciples of Jesus. And this section is meant, one, to encourage them, but also, again, to provide a defense against his accusers who probably were using his quick departure from Thessalonica to make the claim that he didn't really care about them. And therefore, he couldn't be trusted, and therefore, the gospel he preached could not be trusted and should not be believed. Now, as Paul recounts the time since he left them and refutes the false claims of those who opposed him, as he does that, what, we're, what we are provided with then is a beautiful picture and a beautiful example of someone who is committed to making disciples. So over the next several weeks, I want us to unpack this section of 1 Thessalonians. And as we do, I'm going to pray that we will be challenged concerning our either obedience or lack of obedience to Jesus' command to go and make disciples. My desire as we study this part of the letter is that as we see Paul describe how invested he is in the lives of the Thessalonian believers, how committed he is to their spiritual health and ongoing obedience to Jesus, that we will become more committed than ever to investing our lives into the lives of others for the intentional purpose of seeing them grow as disciples of Jesus. I want our church to be full of genuine disciple makers as we live on mission each and every day for King Jesus. Today we're going to begin with these first four verses of this this section that runs all the way through chapter 3, verse 13, verses 17 through 20. And so I'm calling this genuine disciple making missional longing. I mean, that's kind of the, 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 the phrase I'm using for these four verses, missional longing. Now, when I use the word missional, which I'm going to throughout this section of the letter, not just today, but for the next few weeks. When I use the word missional, uh, I'm, I'm simply referring to a lifestyle of intentional obedience to the great commission of Jesus. To be missional means to, to take ordinary circumstances and relationships and abilities and resources and leverage them for the sake of making disciples from every nation. To leverage them for the sake of the mission. For instance, the passages that we're going to look at today, these, these verses, verse 17 through 20, they're going to focus on how Paul deeply longs to be with the Thessalonians. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But there's nothing inherently Christian or missional simply about longing to be with someone. I mean, anybody for any reason can long to be with someone. But when that longing to be with someone is rooted in a desire to see that other person become a disciple of Jesus or a a more faithful disciple of Jesus, then that longing for them could be described as a missional longing. Let me give you a main idea statement for uh, for these four verses, and then we'll we'll, uh, dive in. I've got two two main points for you uh, today. Uh, Main idea statement for you is this. We must pour ourselves into developing deep disciple-making relationships. Simple statement. Simple statement, but not always easy to do. We must pour ourselves into developing deep disciple-making relationships. I want want to read these four verses again. I'm going to read them kind of quickly. But I want you to be thinking as I read them. I want you to think, um, what is Paul's Paul's, um, uh, 
feelings towards the Thessalonians? How does he feel towards them? What's his attitude towards them? Okay, be thinking of some words that you would use to describe Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians. Okay, Uh, but since he says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now, what what kind of words come to your mind? How would you describe Paul's feelings towards the Thessalonian believers? Perhaps you would use words such as as loving or deep or committed or faithful or heartfelt or real or genuine. I would agree. All of those are great words to describe Paul's relationship uh, with the Thessalonians, how he feels towards them. But I think there's another word that we can use, and it's the word longing. He's longing to be there with him, with them. Now, this is a word that's used in deep relationships, but mostly only in a certain context. The word longing is used when there's something or someone you want to be with or have, but but you don't have them at that moment. You know, I don't long for water when I'm standing in my kitchen. I don't long for it because it's right there in front of me. There's the sink in front of me, maybe some water in the refrigerator, it's right there. But on a really hot summer day, I'm outside cutting grass, I may long for water because there's a separation that exists between me and that water. Not a very long, a large separation, it's there in the kitchen, but still, I'm not there in the kitchen. So I would long in that moment to get to where the water is. What is Paul longing for in verses 17 through 18? He's longing for personal interaction. He's longing for personal interaction with the Thessalonians. I want us to learn two things about disciple makers in verses 17 through 20. And the first is this. Disciple makers long for personal interaction with disciples. Disciple makers long for personal interaction with disciples. The first few words of verse 17 set up the situation that results in Paul longing for personal interaction. Paul says, but since we were torn away from you. Here, Paul is recounting the events that are recorded in Acts chapter 17. You see, when Paul was there in Thessalonica, when he was there with Silas in Thessalonica, um, at, at one point, a mob was formed and they came and attacked the house of Jason, who was a Christian and uh, made him made him. Pay a, pay a security. Uh, they're not going to you know, associate with Paul, like all this stuff. And it uh, happened. And the result of that was that uh, the, the, the believers there thought it best for Paul and Silas uh, to, to, to leave the city. And so we find in Acts chapter 17, verse 10, these words, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So we learn in Acts chapter 17 that Paul and Silas left the Thessalonians during the night probably secretly, in order to escape without being seen by those who were causing all the, all the trouble. And this meant that they probably didn't get to say their proper goodbyes. So now Paul is describing this, his, his, his longing for them as, as, I've been torn away from you. This, this word, the word, Greek word that's translated torn away or ripped away, it's literally the word orphaned is what it means. It can, it can be used to refer to uh, to. Children who, who have lost their parents or to parents who have, who have lost a child. 
It's a strong word that Paul is using here, and it conveys how deeply he loves the Thessalonians and how painful it was to leave them. He, then he calls them brothers, which is a, a term of endearment and affection. And, and then he, he says in, uh, that, that he was torn away from them for a short time, which means his intention was not to be gone from them forever, but that it would just be a little while and he would, he would come back to them. And then he says, in person, not in heart. Which means that although they were out of his sight, Paul couldn't see them when he left and went to Berea and then on to Athens and on to Corinth. He couldn't see them, but they were not out of his mind. They were out of his sight, but they weren't out of his mind. Paul probably intended this statement here to serve as a defense against those who were saying, See, Paul doesn't care about you. He doesn't care. He ran off in the middle of the night without even saying goodbye. You'll probably never see him again. He's probably already forgotten you. And to that accusation, Paul is saying, no, absolutely not. We didn't want to leave you. We were torn away from you. And our intention was not to leave forever, but only for a little while. And though we were absent physically, we continued thinking about you affectionately. Clearly, Paul feels a deep connection to the Thessalonians. But he's not finished here. He continues defending himself by expressing his longing for the Thessalonians when he, when he continues and he says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Notice the specific thing Paul longed for. He endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire from a deep sense of wanting or longing to come to the Thessalonians and see them face to face. He was desiring personal interaction with the Thessalonians. Paul's desire to help them grow in their faith led him to long for personal interaction with them. Yes, he could write a letter to them. We see that he did that. Yes, he could send someone to them on his behalf. Skip down to chapter 3, verse 2, and you find that's exactly what he did. But none of that could take the place of seeing them face to face. None of that could take the place of personal interaction with those he loved, those disciples that he was seeking to make for the Lord. You see, there's nothing like personal interaction to foster deep relationships. And here's the thing. Disciple making is rooted in fostering deep relationships. If we're going to make disciples. You, we've got to be building and working on having deep relationships with those we're seeking to disciple. And so if disciple making requires building deep relationships and deep relationships require personal interaction and even physical presence when possible, then personal interaction and even presence is an essential ingredient for making disciples. Listen, church, God has called all believers to be making disciples. All of us. It's not a command just to some Christians, it's to all of us. But it's going to be really hard to make disciples if we don't have much personal interaction with those God has called us to disciple. The majority, I believe, of our discipleship relationships will and should take place in the context of the church. Now, I don't mean that, that you have to come to a church building to disciple somebody and be discipled. That's not what I'm referring to. What I mean is that most of our discipling will take place in the context of our church family. So uh, a more mature believer in the church will disciple and, and help shepherd and help a younger believer in the faith, um, not necessarily by age, but just a less mature believer in the faith, uh, grow in his or her faith. Most of that happens in church relationships. And so at the very least, this then means not neglecting the gathering of the saints 
for weekly worship. But I think we have to take it a step further. If we're going to really be a part of someone's spiritual development, we have to be involved in one another's lives. We've got to spend time together. We've got to share meals together. We've got to share burdens with one another. We've got to cry together. We've got to laugh together. We've got to be involved in one another's lives. There must be deep personal interaction in genuine disciple-making relationships. But that's not always easy. One of the reasons that's not always easy is because we have an enemy. An enemy who seeks to hinder personal interaction among believers because he knows that personal interaction is vital to spiritual health and maturity. Paul says at the end of verse 18, but Satan hindered us. I'm, I'm longing to see you again and again. I'm longing to see you. But Satan hindered us. Now, we don't know exactly what Paul is referring to here. We can speculate, but we don't know exactly. What is clear, though, is that Satan is real and that he is actively opposing genuine disciple making. Satan is real. And he is actively opposing genuine disciple making. This means that if we are going to prioritize, if we're going to prioritize disciple making, this is going to be an important part of our lives. We've got to fight for it. We've got to fight to prioritize genuine disciple making in our lives. It's not just going to happen by accident because Satan's going to be pulling us in the opposite direction. We've got to be intentional in making it happen. I don't know what Satan might use in your life. Perhaps Satan might use our busy family schedules or a busy church schedule to keep us from pouring ourselves into building deep disciple-making relationships with others. Satan may use our prideful tendencies which keep us from opening up around other believers uh, and sharing our burdens of our hearts. Or he might use our prideful tendencies which focus so much on ourselves, all we care about is our own spiritual growth. And we're not really interested in hearing what's going on in somebody else's life and how we can help them grow in their relationship with the Lord. Satan might use our lack of faith that God will give us the ability to help disciple another person. Whatever whatever approach he takes, just know that we have an enemy who is working against us as we seek to carry out and fulfill the mission that God has given us. But we also have a king, church. We also have a king who has defeated Satan and who will one day return to destroy Satan forever. And it's the return of Christ Paul turns to in the next couple of verses. I said uh, a few minutes ago that I want us to notice two, um, two things, two key truths about disciple makers um, in verses 17 through 20. The first is that disciple makers long for personal interaction with disciples. And the second is this. Disciple makers view disciple making as their primary mission. Disciple makers view disciple making as their primary mission. In other words, it takes first place in their lives. We could and we should ask the question, why does Paul have such a deep longing for the Thessalonians? I mean, why is he why is he longing? I mean, he's been there and preached the gospel to them. Why is he longing to to go back to them and to learn about how they're doing and following the Lord Jesus. I think the answer lies, lies in verses 19 through 20. The reason Paul is so concerned with the spiritual growth of the Thessalonians, the reason Paul is, is so concerned that they are continuing to faithfully follow Jesus is that he understands disciple making as his primary mission assigned to him by his king who is going to come back one day. 
Notice how he steers this, this, this letter so quickly from the present to the future, specifically the future return of Jesus. He says, for what is our hope? Or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. The word for, which begins verse 19, signifies that he is going to give the reason behind his longing to be with them. And the reason is that Jesus is coming back one day. And when he does, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, they will find themselves standing before the king. And the only thing that's going to matter in that moment is whether or not they've been obedient to the king's command, to the king's commission. Think about it this way. Let's say I'm 15 years old, which I was at one point. Let's say I'm 15 years old and my dad is leaving on an extended work trip. And before he leaves, he he says, son, he says, I'm going to be gone for for a couple of weeks. And uh, and while I'm gone. Um, I want you to tend to our garden. I want you to take care of the garden that, that, that's been planted here in our yard. While I'm gone, I want you to take care of it. Now, listen, I've left everything you need to take care of the garden. I, I, I have left the, the, the tiller. I, I've filled up the gas can for the tiller. I've got all the fertilizer you need. I've got the water hose. I've got the sprinkler. I've got all the all the tools that you need, the, the, the implements. I, I got it. I've got everything. It's all out in the shed. Everything you need to take care of the garden. And uh, and, and I expect when 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 I get back in two weeks, that that garden ought to be producing, uh, producing fruit, should be producing vegetables. Two weeks go by and my dad returns. What is he going to ask me? Tell you what he's not going to ask me. He's not going to ask me how my video game playing was going while he was gone. If that's something that I was into. He's not going to ask me, uh, hey, did you have a, have a lot of fun with all your friends while I was gone? Probably not going to ask me that. He's not going to say, did you get some extra sleep while I was gone? No, he's probably not going to ask me that. What's he going to ask me? How's the garden? How's the garden? He's going he's gonna to ask me. He's going to come back and he's going to ask, how healthy are the plants? How much did it produce while I was away? You see, he gave me a task before he left and he is going to rightfully expect to find me accomplishing that task when he returns. Let's say a friend comes over during that two weeks that my dad is gone and he says, why are you spending so much time on that garden? Why are you, why are you giving so much of your energy to that? And my response, hopefully, would be, you see, my dad is coming back. He's gone right now, but he's coming back. And when he does, I want him to be honored by seeing that I've spent my time wisely doing the task that he left for me to do. Friends, that's what Paul is saying here. That's what Paul is saying here, except on a much deeper and more significant level. King Jesus left. But before he did, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. One commission, one command, one task, one assignment, whatever word you want to give it. It's there and it's clear. And so is there any question what he's going to ask when he returns? No, not at all. 
He's going to look at us and he's going to ask, where are my disciples? How much fruit are they producing? How have you poured yourself into helping them grow strong and healthy in their faith, producing fruit in keeping with my kingdom purposes? Listen, church, our hope and joy and crown of boasting when the Lord Jesus returns is dependent on whether or not we invested our lives accomplishing the one task that he has given to us. Paul is confident that Jesus will return one day. He speaks about the return of Jesus all throughout the letter. Paul uses this word in verse 19 that's translated coming, his coming. It's a, it's a word that is often used in Scripture to refer to the second coming of Jesus. Paul uses it four times in 1 Thessalonians. There's no doubt Jesus is coming back one day. And when he does, we will stand before him. Now, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to stand before Jesus one day. But he's not gonna he's not gonna say, Hey, were you faithful with the task that I gave you? He's just gonna he's just gonna say, I never knew you. Get away from me. And you'll be cast into hell. You'll experience the just punishment for your sin forever. If I could pause for just a minute in this message on disciple making and just say, if that's you today, if that's what's coming for you in judgment because you never turned your life over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ then I plead with you today, friend, please don't wait another moment. Jesus, Jesus paid, paid the price for sin on, on Calvary's cross. When he died, he was, he was taking our place. And so if you'll trust in him, if you'll repent from your sin, turn from your sin, believe in Jesus, believe that he did everything necessary to save you from your sin. You ask him to come and, 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 and come and be king and Lord in your life. Forgive you, not because you deserve it, because he paid the price on the cross, then he'll do that. And you won't have to hear those words, depart from me, I, I never knew you. But it doesn't mean you won't stand before him. You see, even we, even believers, even we're going to stand before Jesus one day and be judged. Now, now, now that judgment is not going to be to determine whether or not we go to heaven or hell, because that, that decision has already been made. That verdict has already been declared when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. Signifying the satisfaction of God's wrath towards sin of all who believe in him. That's done. Praise the Lord. But Christ will judge us as Christians. He will judge what we've done with the salvation that he's given to us. He will judge whether or not we have obeyed him while he's away. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And then again, in his second letter um, that we have in Scripture to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians, we find these words. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking about believers here. He's using the word we. We believers must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Church, the king is coming back. The king is returning and we will stand before him and give an account as to how we use the resources he provided to obey his command to make disciples. And so Paul poses that question to the Thessalonians. 
What is our joy or, or our hope, our crown of boasting before the Lord when He comes? Is it not you? Is it not you? In other words, you Thessalonians with whom we shared the gospel when we were with you and with whom we are longing to see again so that we can continue to build you up in the faith. You will be there on that day. You're going to be there on that day. And when Jesus says, show me what you did while I was gone. Me and Timothy and Sylvanus, we're going to point at you. We're going to point at you. We're, we're going to point over it at you Thessalonians as proof that we were obedient to the king's command. I want to ask you a very important question today. Christian, who will you point to on that day? Who will you point to on that day? What will be the proof that you labored tirelessly for the mission of, of God? Will you be able to say on that day, Lord Jesus, I took the gifts and the resources and the abilities you gave me and I worked hard to make disciples for your kingdom. And see that person over there? See those people over there? There's the fruit of the labor. Whether or not we have faithfully followed Jesus by making faithful followers of Jesus is all that will matter on the day our King returns. And so we should pour ourselves into making disciples every day until that day that He does return. We see an interesting phrase here. Paul uses the phrase, crown of boasting in verse 19 crown of boasting maybe you're wondering what what's he talking about there crown of boasting well there are two words for crown in greek uh, one word refers to the crown that a king wears that's not the crown that paul refers to here in this passage the crown that he refers to in this passage is the crown that that was placed on the head of an athlete in the Greek games, who won. It's kind of like a gold medal. But they put a crown on their head. It was the crown symbolizing victory. That's the kind of crown that Paul talks about here. Only the athlete who wore that crown had the right to boast of victory. And when the athlete looked at that crown, he would be reminded that all of his hard work paid off. I think about those of you who uh, have just recently graduated. Your diploma is your crown of victory, so to speak. And when, when you look at that di diploma, you probably breathe a, a, a sigh of relief. And uh, it, that's good. That's a good feeling to breathe that sigh of relief. You, you have this kind of a little bit of a sense of victory or maybe a, a, a huge sense of victory. And you know that all the hard work paid off. The time you spent studying could have been spent uh, doing other things and probably things that were a lot more fun, but you wouldn't be holding that diploma if you had wasted your time. Paul is saying that the Thessalonian believers will be the proof that he didn't waste his time on this earth. But you know, when I look at my diplomas that I've earned through the years, including my kindergarten diploma all the way, way back when, 
when I look at those those pieces of paper, um, there's that sense of victory, but at the same time I realize that I really don't get the credit for that. Yes, I had to put in the time and effort, but none of those degrees would have been possible were it not for parents and schools and, and great teachers who, who provided everything that I needed to accomplish the task of earning that diploma. Perhaps the illustration breaks down, as all illustrations do at some point, but I think this is similar to what Paul is is saying that he'll be able to boast before the Lord Jesus when he points to the disciples he made, but he'll really just be boasting in Jesus. You see, when he looks at those disciples, he will immediately realize that the Father was the one who chose them. That, that the Son was the one who died for them. That the Spirit was the one who kept them to the end. Not only that, but God provided him with everything he needed to be a genuine disciple maker. He was simply a tool in the hand of the Redeemer. I keep referring to uh, chapter 5, verse 24, um, as we've been studying 1 Thessalonians, but it's so important. I'm going to read it again. He says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God's the one ultimately who does the work. And so Paul can boast in the disciples he made without stealing glory from Jesus because he knows that Jesus is the one ultimately responsible for their salvation and his salvation and for anything good that he did with the salvation that God freely gave to him. This crown of boasting brings glory to the King of kings and Lord of lords who accomplished salvation through his death on the cross. And so Paul can refer at the same time to to receiving a crown of boasting on his head while at the same time in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, saying, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Paul poured himself into making disciples. He longed for personal interaction with the Thessalonians so that he could disciple them, so that he could help them grow in their faith, because he viewed disciple-making as his primary mission it was the only thing that would matter when he stood before jesus one day he had a missional longing to be with the thessalonians because his presence with them would serve in accomplishing the mission of king jesus church family making disciples is not optional for any of us That is the task we have been given by our King. Everything we do as individuals, everything we do as a church must serve that purpose. We shouldn't make decisions based on what is most comfortable or what is easiest or what makes the most people happy or what makes us fit in with the world or what is most popular or what fits into the schedule that we have designed for ourselves centered around our own selfish wants and desires. No, we should make decisions to use the resources and gifts and talents God has given us to best accomplish the mission to which King Jesus has called us. We should live to make disciples. That which will matter when I stand before Jesus one day is what should matter in my life right now. Do you ever wonder what what should matter most in my life right now? I think what should matter most in our lives right now is what will matter when we stand before Jesus one day. That which will matter when I stand before Jesus one day is what should matter in my life right now. There's a saying that perhaps you've heard. It's a saying that God used um, in, my, in my heart and in my life at a very pitiful, pivotal time. 
in my life um, when I was starting my freshman year of college. And the saying goes something like this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Only one life, friend, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You see, neither a large 401k, nor a nice house, nor a comfortable church building, nor really cool church programs, nor fancy cars, nor a trophy case full of awards, nor any amount of earthly fame or notoriety will garner a look of approval from our king when he returns because he's going to be looking for one thing, disciples. Our hope and joy and crown of boasting on that day will be those people in whom we have invested our lives for their spiritual benefit. Listen, I want to wear that crown of victory one day. I want to wear it one day for the glory of Jesus. But that means right now I must live a disciplined life, not getting distracted by the things of the world, not living for my own comfort and ease, but pursuing deep relationships with others that are centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I must spend myself for that which no earthly accolades will be given, but that which will bring the only accolade that matters. Hearing Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Church, if we're going to be faithful to Jesus, we can't look to our earthly accomplishments or hobbies or jobs or possessions as our glory and joy. We must consider the disciples we are making our glory and joy, not just throwing the gospel at them haphazardly, but investing our lives in their lives to see them become lifelong followers of Jesus. The king is counting disciples. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were counting disciples. Dr. Livingston was counting disciples. In church, we must be counting disciples. So let me ask you a question. What are you counting? Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter how few or how many your resources. It doesn't matter how small or large your sphere of influence is. What matters is whether or not you take whatever resources and gifts and abilities and influence God has given you and you use them to make disciples of Jesus. So all that's going to matter when Jesus returns and so that's all that should matter in our lives right now. It should be primary. Number one in our lives, each and every day. You know, when Jesus returns, I really want him to find my hands blistered, the tiller dirty, the gas can empty. The garden hose worn out, the fertilizer used up, and a garden full of fruitful disciples. I hope that you desire that as well. Disciple makers long for personal interaction with disciples, motivated by a desire to be found faithful when King Jesus returns. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it's a challenging passage. Father, I, I've been challenged in, in studying it, preparing to preach. Father, and even as 
even as I've been preaching, Lord, is challenging. Father, there's so many things that distract us from the most important things. Sometimes even in church. Sometimes even in a church setting, there are things that we do that, that aren't bad, but, but they, they can distract us from the main thing. Father, I pray that we as a church and then as individual Christians, Lord, we will be committed to making disciples. Father, it takes time, it takes energy, it takes effort. Father, but, but help us to pour ourselves into building and fostering deep relationships with others so that we can help them grow in their walk with You. Father, so that they can help us grow as well. Help us to be obedient to Your commission. Father, help us to consider others that we are ministering to our glory and joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.